We're going to continue on, plotting on through Romans. And uh, as we begin, our Old Testament reading is Daniel chapter 9, verses 16 through 19. And as you're turning there, Daniel 9, 16 through 19, and then we'll go to Romans 3. Um, just to context a little bit, this is Daniel's prayer for his people while in a foreign land in captivity. And he says this, beginning in verse 16. He says, O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore... O oh, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his plea for mercy. And for your own sake, O oh Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. And then over to Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26 this morning. Paul says this, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe, for there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and a justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you and praise you. And as we come before your word, um, we just pray that your spirit would be poured out upon us. Give us understanding, illumination, Lord God. I pray that you would be with me as I bring forth your word um, for the, the grace and the privilege of having the opportunity to, to preach it, Lord. I just pray that your spirit would lead, guide, and direct because we sit at the feet of our Lord and teacher and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Lord, bless this to your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Wow, when you come to a text like this, man, I don't know what to do as a preacher. I just kind of want to run and hide or just get Spurgeon up here or give you something like that. This is, it is so rich. It is so profuse it is so deep that it just kind of 
it just leaves you like this. I know how inadequate I am for the task. You know that anyway, but when you come in text upon text like this, and we're going to be t- talking about today, it just magnifies that. It really does. So it's all glory to the Lord, and just pray that He uses your His servant for your good this morning, um, because. When you read the, the the passage, especially verse twenty three through twenty five, it just leaves you in awe. It just if you're a Christian this morning, it just leaves you in stunned amazement, absolute awe because of what he's. Once you understand the nature and the depth of your sin, and that's what Paul's been talking about in these first three and a half chapters. When you realize what you actually deserve because of your sin, right? What I deserve because how sinful I am against when I realize that. When you grasp what Paul's been making painfully plain to us regarding the nature or sinful state apart from Christ, the last thing that you would expect is what he's about to show us regarding the grace of God in our lives. That's why it just leaves you amazed and stunned and all. That why we're here before him is all by the grace of God, and that's it. We have no claim. There's nothing we could say. Our mouths are shut up because of sin. And he reaches down and gives us love. And this is how he does that, gives us life in Christ. This is really the heart of Romans. I think it is. I'm not the only one, uh, obviously. Martin Lloyd-Jones, Martin Luther, um, Spurgeon, Sproul. You could name, go down the list. This this is so um, like the heartbeat of this very letter. It tells us what it means to be saved from our sins. That's why. That's why it's so important. We know that we're saved. Hey, we're saved from our sins. We believe in Jesus. But this tells us how and why we are saved. So really, there's such deep theology here, more than I could cover in this sermon that's for sure you need to you need to go back and do a deeper study on what you're going to hear uh this morning because this 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 deep theology explains the simple beauty of salvation that leads to a state of gratefulness this is why we're so grateful as christians and this is why it's so bothersome that people don't understand theology or the depth of scripture because when you don't you don't know how grateful you should be. You don't know how wonderful and amazing God is and what he's actually done for us. You do on a superficial level, but if you understand superficially, you're going to live superficially, right? When you understand the depth, that comes out in your life. Man, I know that he's saving, but I didn't know it was this much, this love. I'm going to live and serve him. That grateful love, that grateful obedience, learning more and living for him. So the three, three things we're going to look at again, just touch on because of the, the nature, the depth of this, and the nature of the sermon. But three things to look at regarding our salvation, how we are saved, what happens to us. The first one we've already talked about a couple of weeks ago. We'll continue to talk about it because Paul does. It's it's a major theme in this letter, and that is justification. So we believe in Jesus Christ. That means that we are justified. Paul says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's total depravity. That's our sinfulness. We can't obtain his glory, not through works, not through trying, not through doing, whatever we, whatever path we take. There's nothing we could do to win or earn his love. We are sinners. That shuts up what Paul has been saying early on in this book. But he goes on to say, 
and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to to be received by faith. That's it, right? That's a power-packed, dynamite explosion of God's theology of salvation, of our soteriology. It's really right there. So the first thing is justified. And that means when we believe in Jesus Christ, you know what that means? Up. Let's look at Shorter Catechism, question number 33. It's a beautiful, you should have this memorized. You should know this, study this. It's a, one of the best, tightest definitions of justification by faith alone that there is. Shorter Catechism question, I think it's number 33, asks, what is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace. Free grace, nothing we do. Wherein he pardons, I'll just say pardons, all of our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Justification, free grace, pardons, accepts as righteous, imputed righteousness of Christ. That's what it's all about. We've talked about this. I'm not going to belabor this point too much, but it just means this, man, that you are guilty, unholy, unrighteous, unclean and unworthy sinner. But in Christ, by faith in him, you have been accepted by God as innocent, as holy, as righteous, as clean, and as worthy to come into his presence. Amen? Praise God. And we still don't feel like that, do we? I mean, how would you feel if the Lord showed up here today? You would be like, hey, you would be bowing down because we know that we're not worthy, and yet we are worthy in Christ. That's the paradox of justification, because we still know in our heart of hearts, man, it's I'm not, but in Christ, yes, it is yes, because his righteousness, as we said, was imputed to us. That means stamped to our account. His righteousness is given to you. Your sin is given to him. He pays for that. So when the Father looks at you, he sees the finished work of Christ and says, not guilty. You're able to stand in my presence. That's deep. That's justification by faith alone. So even though we are not fully objectively righteous, and by the way, a little path we're going to take. If you grew up Roman Catholic, one of the main reasons you had to go to purgatory is why? Because you had to become objectively righteous in your soul. You had to be absolutely objectively righteous. So if you died in your sin, but not in, in um, mortal sin, but in venal sin, venal sin, you go to purgatory, people pray for you, people buy indulgences for you, people light candles for you, they do all that until you're filled with righteousness, and then God says, okay, now you're ready to come into heaven. That's not biblical theology, that's not justification. Justification is, even though we are not objectively without sin, We can know today that if we die tomorrow, we'll be in heaven. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. Not when you go through purgatory and have to be, have the sin burned off and have all your righteousness obtained till you're objectively truly righteous. You're counted as righteous because of what Christ has done for you. Amen? Praise God. That's a good thing. We're not fully right. We still sin, and yet we're counted as righteous and fully accepted by the Father based on the work of the Son. That's why Martin Luther cried out in Latin, Simul ustis et peccator. You know what that means? Sounds like mumbo-jumbo right now. It means at the same time, just and sinner. 
That's us. And so we praise the Lord God for that because we are accepted by his grace. That's our justification. Like I said, two weeks ago, we talked about it. You can go back and, and look. We'll be talking about it as we move forward, especially chapter 4. Justification, a main, major theme in Romans. But that's not all. He goes on to say, All of sin fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Through the redemption. You know that you've been redeemed by God. Do you know that you've been bought with a price? Do you know that your debt has been paid in full by the Lord Jesus Christ? This is what, what he does for us. Now, first of all, when he says you've been redeemed in Christ Jesus, that should tell you something right away. That tells us something. That teaches us something. That shows, first of all, that there is no other way to be saved. There is no other. You are redeemed in Christ Jesus. That Christ is the only qualified Savior. And you guys need to understand and know that because we're living in a day, we're living in an age where people are questioning that. I had breakfast just the other morning with three young people, one being my son Will, two other young people, and one of the questions was, why just Jesus? You know, I can get God, but why Jesus? Why not something or someone else? And see, that's a big deal. There are many reasons we talked about it. We talk about it often uh, through our sermons. One reason, obviously, is you need to be reconciled against the God whom you sinned against. You don't need to be reconciled to the earth. You don't need to be reconciled to Allah. You don't need to be reconciled to the false God. You need to be reconciled to your creator, to the one that made you, to the one you sinned against, and you're reconciled by the one whom he sent. But we've talked about that many times. But man, all, all you need to do is Go ahead and, and talk to the countless number of people who have been delivered out of rank paganism, out of pragmatism, which is kind of the religion of our day. Hey, man, if it feels good, do it. I'm just going to do what's expedient. I'm going to do what's best for me. I'm going to do what's right. Talk to people that have been delivered out of that into Christ, out of New Age spiritualism, out of Islam, out of Hinduism, out of Mormonism, out of Jehovah's Witness. You talk to those people. They haven't been delivered by force. You, know, you don't force them out. Like some religions will force. They'll come with the sword. You believe or you're going to you know, be, be persecuted for that. Not by force, not by clever persuasion, not by empty promises, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. When you talk to people that have been delivered from these by the power of the Holy Spirit, they will tell you about the bondage they were in before they were freed in Christ. It doesn't matter. Go ahead. Look up, look up on YouTube different testimonies from people that have been delivered, that they've been freed from Christ, they've been freed from that guilt, they've been freed from those works and that trying and that doing, they've been freed from the confusion, they've been freed from that fear of not knowing. You know that if you're a Christian this morning, what you have been freed from. That's the idea of redemption. Because apart from Christ, you're in bondage. Because you're in bondage to your sin. Christ came to set us free. You've been set free. I know some of your testimonies. You've been set free from that sin and you're in Jesus Christ. Amen? Praise God. Apart from Christ, we're in bondage. That's why we need to be redeemed. Spiritually, we're prisoners. Spiritually, we are slaves to sin. Spiritually, our, our, that's our natural nature, Right? That's our natural state. We're in bondage to sin. And you know what? Sometimes you don't even know it. When you are sin, you don't realize how deep you were in sin until you're saved sometimes. You know in your heart of hearts, right? But you don't know until you're saved just how 
deep you were in sin and in some specific sins. That you were in bondage to that. And you've been set free by the power of Christ. Let's face it, man. Let's face it. Let's face it right now. Sinners love their sin. Don't think that they do not. They love the bondage. You loved the bondage when you were in at least aspects of it, didn't you? Come on. Let's not fool ourselves too much. I've talked to too many. I've talked to too many of you, right? I've talked to people, as, and you've heard testimonies of people before they were Christians. And that, that thief, he loved stealing. He loved taking what wasn't his. He, he just did. He, he, he liked it. He, didn't, he wanted to take something that wasn't his, and now it belongs to him. It's yours, now it's mine. Thieves love to steal. Come on, before you're a Christ. You know the testimony. That, there's no question. And there's greed there, and there's never enough. They just want it, and they'll steal. Don't think that they don't like that. See, they're in bondage to it, but they love their bonds in that way to, to a degree. Don't think they have mercy, like regret. Oh, I'm, I'm bad that I'm a, I'm a thief. That's not true. You know that, man. Liars love to deceive, man. They love to tell lies. They love getting over on you. They love making themselves... Not guilty. They, they, they just take joy in that. They're not, oh, I'm in bondage to my lying. And I, no, 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 no. Liars love to lie and they love to deceive and they love to get over on you. It goes on gossip and slanders. They love the damage they do. They know that they're hurting you. Don't think that they don't. So you got those people that kind of spread gossip like wildfire and they'll slander and they'll make things up about you. Don't think that they're not, they don't know what they're doing. Oh, rats, I'm a slanderer. No, they'll justify that sin. <laughs> you know, they'll justify that bondage that they're in. You know, that person deserves it. And they always have their reasons and excuses why, you know, this is why I'm a thief. This is why I steal. This is why I do that. Right? Murderers don't mind taking life. You could talk to those who've been converted even from death row, and they'll tell you how they almost delighted in that. You could talk to former or listen to former abortionists about that, and they don't mind killing. Lustful people, they love their perversions. They just do. Cheaters are going to cheat. That's what they're going to do. See, see, this is bondage. This is what we need in part. This is a symptom of our heart and why we need to be redeemed. This is our sin against God. Do you understand? This is what we live. This is what we did. This is how we live. This is how we functioned in our lives. You didn't think twice about getting over on somebody else. Hey, you know what? If I'm smarter than you, then you deserve to be fooled. If you're too dumb to understand that I'm trying to get over on you. That's how they rationalize it. All right? If I could take it, I will if I want it. That's your wife and she wants to be with me, then that's too bad for you, man. Right? This is how it goes. This is the world. That's sin. That's bondage. That's what we're in. That shows the need. The vain love their vanity. They just do. The, 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 the prideful love themselves. They're never going to give in. They're always right. They're not going to do, right? This is it. The covetous always want what they can't have. That's why he said he's come to redeem us in Jesus Christ. Now listen, and this is so important, it's not like they're trying to break free. Now at times, people may feel remorse for certain things that they did or because they got caught or something like that, but it's not true godly repentance. It's not contrition. It's not like David who said, against you and you alone have I sinned. That's true repentance. That's contrition. That's owning it and owning the consequences. Sometimes when people get caught, they just kind of, you know, 
make the excuse, and there might be a little feeling bad, but sinners love their sins, and that's what we need to be redeemed from. That's what we're in bondage to. That's the idea. <clears throat> you could talk to, as a pastor, I've talked to people like sex addicts, if you want in that, put it in that way, who are deeply, deeply perverse. I mean, some of the things, oh my goodness. And you're, you could see they're in bondage. They're just in bondage to that. They don't see it like that. It's, they see it in a different way, you know, and they'll make excuses for it, but you could see the bondage. If you've lived with an alcoholic or a drug addict, you could see the bondage. They can't necessarily until they do. But for a long time, you know, alcohol, they, they don't see it. You see it. You see the bondage that they're in. That's what we need to be redeemed from. That's why he says we need redeemed. We are in it until Jesus, and unless Jesus sets us free. Do you know what that word redeem means when he says a redemption that is in Jesus Christ? That means to rescue by ransom. That means to pay the price for someone, to buy out. So, one example at this time, you would purchase the freedom of a slave. If a slave was there, you would pay that price for their freedom, pay the redemption price, that person would be set free. Or someone would be kidnapped and bound and held for ransom. When you paid that ransom, they would be set free. What Paul is saying here, what we have in redemption, this is a key doctrine, soteriological doctrine, salvation doctrine. Christ accomplished our redemption by his saving work. He purchased us. He paid for you. He paid the ransom price by his own life. He was that price. He gave himself for our sin. The ransom at the price of his own life. His blood was shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Amen? That's what sets us free. That's why Jesus said, if you are in me, if you're set in me, you will be free indeed. I will, we are set free in him. That's how we know true freedom. What are you set free of? You're set free from the punishment of God that you deserve. You're set free from the bondage to sin. We're going to see that in Romans chapter 6. doesn't mean we don't battle with sins. Even some of the sins we mentioned there. But we know we're in the battle with that sin. Romans 6 and 7, we'll get to that much more. We're free from the guilt of sin. Right? We've been redeemed from that. That guilt has been taken away from us. So you're not guilty anymore. And you don't have to live in the guilt of the past sins in that way. That's what it means to be redeemed, to be purchased by Christ. And we might struggle with aspects of sin, but we're no longer, it no longer defines us. Our battle is against it. He rules and reigns in our life as King Jesus. We're a new creation in Jesus Christ. We've put off the old man. We put on the new man, right? Off with that sin. That's not who I am anymore. I'm not who I was. I'm not who I want to be, but I'm not who I was in Christ Jesus. And when I do slip, I have an advocate with the Father who forgives me. Amen? Praise God. We are redeemed. We are purchased with that price by Christ. He paid the debt that we owe because we owe the debt that we could not pay. How are you going to pay for your sins? Christ's perfect life, obedience to the law. He lived the life that you could never live. He died the death you should have died for your sins. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. And every day we have that. And even when we sin, and I want to encourage you in that, because even when we sin, because we do, we have the advocate with the Father. We turn to Christ. That redemption doesn't go away. We can't lose. Listen, justification and redemption is what happens to us. That's our state. That's what we have now. You are justified. You have been redeemed by Christ. And that's because of what Christ did for us. What we receive freely, our justification, our redemption, our sanctification, we receive that freely. Amen. Nothing we can do 
but it came at a great price. It came at the price of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and his blood. And that's what Paul goes on to talk about next. Here's what we have because of what Christ has done. And so he goes on to say this. This is why this is so power-packed. This is why I still feel so very inadequate, even as I'm bringing this forth. This is why you need to delve into this even deeper. You need to know the theology. You need to know the power that's there and understanding in order to appreciate and then to live your life accordingly. He goes on to say, all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God, are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That's it. That's the, that's the, that's the core of everything. That's the propitiation. That's Christ growing to the cross. That's what we sing about all the time. That is the, the blood of Christ. Propitiation takes us directly to the cross of Christ. It means atoning sacrifice. Propitiation is the hinge <clears throat> that turns us from Satan to salvation in Jesus Christ alone. This is how and why we are saved. And that the idea is a simple one of propitiation. It just means appeasement or making satisfaction. It's appeasing the wrath of God through an atoning sacrifice. It's an easy way to put that. Um, now, it is part of our natural inclination as people to offer sacrifice, to appease, isn't it? To, to, to soothe, to turn away, to satisfy somebody's wrath so we don't get in trouble. In pagan religions, we know this from history, we know this from scripture, pagan religions offer sacrifice to do what? To appease their gods, to please their gods, to subdue their anger, to subdue their wrath. But with the pagans, it's always unsure. It's always, it's always a fearful kind of sacrifice that they bring, and they're not sure. They're kind of hoping that by bringing this, the storm will cease. The storm is upon us because we must have done something. We've angered the gods, or we've angered this particular god, so we need to satisfy that god. We need to take away that wrath that he's pouring out. So we're going to offer our sacrifice. We're going to bring something to that god to help stop the disease, the wasting away, the 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 pestilence that's all around us. So we're going to offer something to God to, because he's mad and we need to appease him. And so we're going to do this, that the crops may grow. We had a bad crop. So let's appease our God. He must be angry. So we're going to bring this to him and try to kind of bribe him almost and make bargain with him. Here, we're bringing you this. And it gets to the point where you would bring at times your, your child, your baby, and you would bring it to a false god and sacrifice it on the altar of a false god to try to appease that god, to try to try to soothe that god so things will go well or better for you. That's always been part of human nature. See, the, the, the pagans take the concept of propitiation and twist it, and it always ends up evil. Every time the world takes any concept from Scripture, they twist it to their own means, to their own uses, and it always turns out for evil and wickedness and not for good, even though there's a little bit of truth in it as they borrow from Christian worldview. Just remember that. That was for free. Um, <clears throat> now, we do this in certain ways too, don't we? We're not, we're no strangers to propitiation or trying to make propitiation. I'll just kind of use maybe a couple silly examples, but they're examples nonetheless of this, of this, um, natural inclination towards appeasing. So if you don't see one of your relatives or one of your friends for a long, long time, and you know that they're angry with you because you haven't been there and they're kind of storing up their wrath, what do you do when you go see them? What do you bring them? 
Do you just go empty-handed usually? No, 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 no. You're going to bring something. You're going to bring a gift. You're going to bring something to maybe appease them. Say, here, I got this for you. Please don't be too mad at me, right? We, we want to propitiate that wrath. We want to satisfy. We want to quell that. I see my family smiling, and they know why, right? We make that offering, don't we? We want to propitiate. We want to appease. You can always tell when, when you have a kid-centered home, when, when the child is a little idle in the home. Just go to Target sometime, and if you see a little kid screaming and yelling, wanting this and throwing a fit and being angry and yeah, hitting the parent, I want this, I want this, and what does mommy and daddy do? Okay, honey, here, I'm going to buy you this. Is this what you want? Is this going to make you stop crying? Right? You, you offer that, you propitiate. You try to soothe the wrath, and then the little brat gets what he or she wants, and then they're quiet for five minutes until they want the next thing. That's a tendency, right? Propitiation in Scripture is this. It's a sin offering, a guilt offering prescribed by God. See, here's the difference between the false gods, the pagan gods. We think, oh, here, here God of so and such, here's what you need. And we're kind of thinking this up in our mind and we're going to bring this to you. See, in Scripture, number one, the difference is God prescribes the propitiation in the Old Testament. So on the Day of Atonement, for instance, what did he, what did he prescribe? That the sacrifice would be brought forth. All the propitiatory sacrifices foreshadow the work of Jesus Christ, the finished work of Christ, who is the ultimate propitiation for our sins. So in the Old Testament, the sacrifice would come, the priest would lay his hand on, on that sacrifice, confess the sin of the people, and then what would happen? That animal would be slaughtered. That blood would be shed. The, the, the sin would be atoned for. It would be covered. The wrath would be taken away. The justice would be served. Amen? That's a picture. Always showing forth towards Christ. Unlike the false gods, again, who were capricious, uncontrolled, temperamental, arbitrary, ill-tempered, resentful, conceited, infantile, like the little kid. You know, that's, oh, we're going to try to please our God. It's not like that with the true and living God. And I want you to listen to this. If you haven't heard anything else at this point in this sermon, I want you to hear and listen to this because God's anger towards sin and his wrath against it is not capricious, is not arbitrary, it's not uncontrolled, and it's not infantile. So a lot of people will say to you, oh, you have this angry God who's just punishing people all the time, who's sending this and doing that. No. And again, we don't have the time to get into this. This is why I want you to do deeper study. But listen, the wrath of God, the wrath of God is part of his essential, his perfect nature and character. Just as much as his love is. Just as much as people say, oh, God is love and I love God. Just as much as God is love, he is wrath and he is justice. And his anger comes forth. His anger is an aspect of his holiness. That's why it's a holy anger as his law is transgressed. Oh, he's like that. We're very much, we can identify with that, can't we? If you're in Christ, if you know, do you ever get angry with sin? Do you get angry when you see the news stories of how the law is broken and somebody goes in and just takes another person's life? They break that law. How do you feel about that? Do you feel happy? Do you feel okay? Do you feel ambivalent towards that? No, you're angry because God's law has been transgressed. But you know, even if you're not a Christian, that something is wrong with that. You don't go into somebody's house and take what doesn't belong to you. You don't go and open up a hail of bullets and start shooting people down and killing them. 
that angers you, and it should, because it's sin and it's not right. It's a righteous anger. And that righteous anger demands justice. So how does a person, you see when a person gets away with a crime, and you know that they're guilty, and they're as guilty as they can be, and they get away with it, and then they give that little smile because they know they got away with it. How does that make you feel? <laughs> right? Because justice has not been served. That's, that is part, this is who God is. We need to be thankful that he is angry with sin every day, that he is a just and righteous God, that he demands justice. What if God was just fine with sin? Okay, that's all right. Hey, people make mistakes. People do this kind of stuff. That's okay. What kind of God would he be? What if he never punished the guilty? That's why you have the psalmist crying out, psalm after psalm, Lord, how long? How long are my enemies going to pursue me? How long are my enemies going to be over me? Come and destroy them. Bring forth your justice and your wrath. There's nothing wrong, obviously, with the imprecatory psalms. We pray them because they speak of God's justice. They speak of God's righteous anger against sin and what needs to be done with that. J.I. Packer said, in terms of God's wrath and anger, it's the right reaction of moral perfection toward moral perversity in the creature. It's the right reaction of moral perfection toward moral perversity in the creature. J.I. Packer. It would be morally reprehensible if God didn't punish sin, if God were not angry with sin. So the next time people say, oh, you have an angry God, he's angry against sin. He's angry against sin. And he'll, and he'll deal with that righteously in his wrath. That's the justice of God. I know we don't like that. I know it kind of turns people off. and turns. It shouldn't. We need to embrace this as Christians and never be afraid to speak that in conjunction with the love and mercy of God as we talk about propitiation. See? What makes propitiation so amazing and so unique, and unlike all the other gods, it is God himself who propitiates his wrath. Do you understand that? Not like the pagans who kind of hope to appease their God, hope their offerings enough, hope that God will, you know, this will subdue their God in that way. God propitiates his own wrath. He's, by his own action, he takes the initiative. That's what should blow you away, right? You deserve this. He's righteously angry against you. He's righteously ready to pull out justice on you. But then he himself gives the, gives the answer to that. So we don't experience his wrath. And we don't, have to be under his anger. You see the love, you see the mercy, you see the grace in that? Look at verse 25. It says this, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. It's God. It's the Father himself, the one that we've sinned against, the one who has the righteous right. He does it himself for us. How does he do it? By sending forth his son. And it's not like Jesus. Sometimes people like to portray God, Old Testament, mean. You know, Jesus, good, New Testament. No, 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 no. It's not like Jesus went up to the Father and said, Hey, Father, you know what? I have a plan. Why don't we do this? Why don't I go and propitiate? No. You know, it's not like the, the son is kind of, uh, in, has an alternative plan to the Father. No. He does not change the Father's plan. It's the Father who sends forth the Son. So we see it here. We see it in 1 John chapter 4. It says this, in this is love, the love of God, 
I'm sorry, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He's the one who satisfies God's wrath. He's the one who appeases God's wrath. He's the one who, where God justly pours out his wrath and punishment for sin. Hebrews 2.17, the whole reason that Jesus came, the reason for the incarnation. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. God sent him forth. John 3.16 implies propitiation. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. It's the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The teaching is this, plainly and simply. This is a teaching that God loved those who deserve nothing but his wrath. And so he gave his son to shed his blood so that the wrath would be satisfied and removed. This is why you don't have to face the punishment of God. This is why you don't have to bear your own sins. This is why you don't go to hell. This is why the wrath of God is not upon you. This is why God is not angry with you. Jesus makes all the difference. He is the difference. No other way, no other path you could take. It's through Christ alone who did this through his perfect work, through his uh, life, perfect life, but especially on the cross. That's where he propitiated. That's where he became sin for us. Do you understand that? This is, the, this is everything for us as Christians. This is what we believe. This is what, this is what keeps us from the wrath of God and out of hell that Christ died on that cross for our sins and shed his blood. His substitutionary, sacrificial death on the cross, perfectly satisfied, perfectly appeased the righteous wrath of God, removing it from us, thus opening the way of justification. Why are you justified? Because Jesus died on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, do we have it? Okay. I'll just say it then. <laughs> he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's, he propitiated him. That's why we're justified. That's why we have the imputed righteousness. That's why he can look at you and say, not guilty, come into my presence, because Christ shed his blood. He became sin for us. He bore the wrath of God, the justice of God for our sins. He loves us. That's substitutionary atoning sacrifice. That's what it is. Redeemed us. You know why you're redeemed? We've been bought back, freeing us from the guilt of sin. Ephesians 1, 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, propitiation. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to his grace. It is through his blood. That opens up. The propitiation opens it up for us. Our justification, our redemption, our reconciliation, our sanctification, that Jesus Christ gave himself. That's what Paul is saying here. And it's received by faith. We don't have time to do the rest of this. We'll pick this up next week. Lord willing, finish chapter three. But the reason we stand in awe, the reason you should be amazed every day, the reason you should never take for granted who you are and what you have in Jesus Christ, and the reason you should love him more and live for him and be the person that you're called to be in him is because of this, because he 
propitiated God's wrath against you. That should make you want to be a more obedient Christian, a more loving Christian, a more compassionate Christian, a more faithful Christian, a better husband, a better wife in that way. A person who takes seriously their obligation to Christ to learn more, to understand more deeply what we have and who we are in Christ. Because once you know, then you will feel that great appreciation, that love, and you will bring forth those fruits of righteousness. This is why we stand in all of the love and the grace of God. The more you know, the more that you grow in love, appreciation, application to your own life, greater obedience, greater confidence in Christ because he has died for us. He has propitiated God's wrath.